It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. I think we're on. I don't know. We had some technical problems. If you hear me, give a yell. Somebody call me. (laughs) Let me know if you hear me out there. Anyway, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. I'm Larry Kudlow. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Sorry about the technical issues. I think we're a little shorthanded today in the studio, but whatever. We are here. Join us during the week, by the way. Fox Business. Name of the show is Kudlow. 4 to 5 p.m. Uh, every day, Monday through Friday. And if you can't de- if you can't get us at 4, let me get this right, you can call your favorite 9-year-old who will teach you how to DVR the show. So we're really on. Is that the idea? Okay, we're on. Diego says we're on. That means we must be on. And here on Saturdays, you can hear us live streaming over the Internet. The name of the show is LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com. You'll get us throughout the country, around the world, and throughout the solar system and the Milky Way. We've got it all. So. I want to talk about energy. I want to talk about the debt ceiling. I want to talk some politics. Uh, One thing that's interesting came up on the TV last night. Um, The Republicans are making very good progress, uh, very good progress on the energy front. Okay, they are beginning to turn around. Uh, energy policy with a couple of bills that passed. I I say this because I don't think it got near enough, uh, didn't get near enough coverage in the news. Why am I surprised uh, at that? But actually, they passed a couple of bills. One of them passed yesterday, and that's a bill that will um, will guarantee that if the president continues to sell from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, he continues to deplete the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which, um, you know, is meant for national security and for national uh, natural disasters here at home. Anyway, if he, continues to do, if he continues to deplete it, it will open up more federal lands for drilling. And leasing, particularly for leasing. I should really say that leasing, because you have to get a permit to drill. But um, that was one of the bills. The other bill was passed a couple weeks ago, almost unanimously, was that there would be no um, no uh, spro sales to China. In fact, no petroleum reserves to China of any kind. So those two energy bills, good thing. I just want to mention that. They're kind of turning things around on the energy front. Now, are they going to pass the Senate? Well, we'll wait and see. There'll be tough votes. I think the China bill would pass the Senate. I don't know if the um, opening up federal lands. Of course, Biden will oppose it, like he always does. He hates fossil fuels. The war against fossil fuels continues. The war against gas-burning stoves continues. And... um, we will see how that works. Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema. I don't know if they can get a majority, but maybe they can. So, so that's important. 
The Strategic Production Response Act would tie any SBR sales to additional oil and gas leasing on federal lands. And uh, there is a companion bill in the Senate. And um, before that, the China bill. No sales to China. None. None. If you can believe that. Biden's uh, spro sales. You know, here's the thing that's so interesting. Biden and um, Granholm, his energy secretary, both talked this past week how if we stop selling from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, if we stop selling from the reserve, gasoline prices will go up. So here's the thing. Spro was never intended for gasoline prices. That's just political price manipulation. And it was done principally before the election, right? And yeah, gasoline prices did come down, although they're creeping up again now nationwide. They've come back from about $3 a gallon to $3.50 a gallon. But... um, That thing was originally done for the Arab oil embargo in the 1970s, all the way back then. And in case, uh, you know, with our dependence on foreign oil at that time, we needed some petroleum reserves. It was not meant to manipulate prices. It was meant in a national emergency for national security reasons so we would have a strategic petroleum reserve. Thing was filled up most recently. Trump filled it up to about, I don't know, 700 million barrels. It was also meant in case of emergencies at home. If we had a bad hurricane, something, you know, you get these things in California or Texas, Florida. We should have a strategic reserve to cover in some kind of, you know, really bad weather emergency for a few days. But Biden keeps talking about gasoline prices, and so does Granholm keep talking about gasoline prices. And um, that is not the purpose, was never the purpose, but they admitted it openly. This is the first time we've heard them admit it openly. And that is a very bad thing indeed. All they're doing is price fixing, manipulating it for political reasons. Now, the best way to get gasoline prices down is to produce more oil. We have the cleanest oil in the world. That's all. But they won't do that because they won't provide permits. We are still, we are still today a million barrels a day short of the production we had back at the end of 2019 and early 2020. In more or less round number terms, we were producing 13 million barrels a day. Today we're down a little bit less, a little bit less than 12 million barrels a day. So, of course, gasoline prices, which at the beginning of the Biden term were about $2.35, are up at $3.50. In fact, the whole market, the world market, which is what, where, you know, petroleum gasoline prices come from oil prices on the world market. World market is back to over 80, had gotten down to about 70. The high was about 125. But that's the point. 
You want to keep gasoline prices down? Produce more oil. It's not hard. Produce more oil. Biden doesn't want to do that. They won't give permits for fracking or refining or pipelining, as they did at the very beginning of the term. First thing he did, practically, stopped the Keystone Pipeline. Wasn't that clever? And then, of course, we bid up oil prices to $90 a barrel, $100 a barrel. What did that do? It emboldened Vladimir Putin. We paid Putin for his imperial adventures in Ukraine. He doesn't uh, invade anybody at 40 or $50 a barrel, but he loves to come on at you when it gets to 80 90 $100 a barrel. That is a big part of the Ukraine story. It has been forgotten. It shouldn't be forgotten. So Republicans in the House are trying to gradually overturn Biden's energy policy. They're going to need Senate votes to continue it, but I'm just saying this is a good start. They're starting to turn things around. Now, the second thing, actually, maybe we'll take a break because we screwed up the technology, and I want to talk about uh, Biden's fear-mongering and lying, totalitarian, authoritarian lying. But um, we'll take a quick break. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll come back. Then I want to talk about the debt ceiling and the need for budget cuts. And I think the technology here is going to hold up. Okay, we'll be right back. Stay with us. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. All right, welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. We are back. I think the technology is working. Now I want to switch over from the new course on energy. Uh, Let's talk about the debt ceiling and cutting government spending. And um, this business about Joe Biden... And his henchman, Chuck Schumer, and um, Hakeem Jeffries, they are all all accusing the Republicans of cutting, slashing, destroying Social Security and Medicare and defaulting on the nation's debt. Now, this is an old Democratic tactic this kind of fear-mongering. Anytime the GOP wants to cut spending, Democrats, who have become the world-class biggest spenders in our history, that's all they do. They just lie and keep saying this lie. So all this past week, Joe Biden, Chuck Schumer, Hakeem Jeffries, and others, lesser lights, the press secretary, what's her name? Karine Jean-Pierre. Big loser she is. But anyway, they just keep repeating this lie. So I want to say, uh, first of all, it's not true. Second of all, uh, after spending $6 trillion, $6 trillion, and leading to the highest inflation rate in 40 years, it is high time that we had some budget restraint. The Republicans taking the House ran on this. And they are right to follow through. Now, it's going to take them a while. They're going to go through regular order, the budget committees and the appropriation committees and the Ways and Means committees are going to draw up a plan to cut spending 
and uh, presumably maintain low taxes. And they may also uh, go after regulations, which would boost our economy, which grew at a pathetic pace of 1% last year. We just got the numbers in, 1%. The thing is, this past week I interviewed on the TV show Kevin McCarthy, speaker, and I interviewed um, Steve Scalise, the majority leader, and I asked them directly, are you going to cut Medicare, Social Security? Are you going to default on the debt? Right. I just asked them. It's a matter of public record. And each one said no. We have no plans to do so. We will not do so. I mean, basically, what the Republicans want to do is reduce so-called discretionary spending, not the big entitlements. My pal Kevin Hassett, who was the uh, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors during the Trump administration, Kevin came up with a plan uh, for every dollar increase in federal debt, there should be $3 reduction in uh, budget spending. Three to one. It's very sensible. Scott Perry, the head of the Freedom uh, Caucus, uh, told me on live on the business show on Cudlow and Fox Business, he said, well, we can um, maybe do four to one. A while back in 2011... John Boehner, who was the speaker, did a deal with Obama and got one for one. But the point is there has to be some spending restraint. Democrats will, if allowed to, continue to spend wildly and reinflate the economy. What's happened here? All the spending in twenty in twenty one and twenty two drove the inflation rate to nine percent. It's the highest in four years. The Federal Reserve which didn't take it seriously at first, to their detriment, but they came around. And this year, the Fed has been fighting inflation by shrinking the money supply that the Federal Reserve, that the uh, Democrats created in the first place. But it's leading to a recession. We'll talk about that over the course of the show. The numbers coming in are not good. Now it looks like we're going to have several negative quarters here in the new year, 2023. We had two negative quarters last year. In 2022, you know, the Fed, the the Democrats inflate and the Federal Reserve have to deflate. Well, what good is that? That just gives us, uh, it's anti-prosperity, anti-growth, prosperity killers. So the GOP was elected on this. They're running on this. And all Biden can say is you're going to cut Social Security. It's the third rail of American politics. I get that. Now, what they ought to do, at some point, you're going to run out of money in Social Security. The Congressional Budget Office and the trustees of the Social Security Fund, I think the CBO said in 10 years, 2034, the trust funds will run out of money. The trustees, the actual Social Security trustees, I think at 2035. So you got 10 years, a little more than that. This is 23. So you got 11 or 12 years. What they need to do is put up a bipartisan commission and have a look at how to make the Social Security and Medicare funds solvent again. 
Democrats and Republicans. I was there when I worked for Reagan many years ago. That's what Reagan did. He set up a commission. Yeah, I don't know, Lane Kirkland, the AFL-CIO, Senator Pat Moynihan, the late Senator Moynihan, Democrat from New York, Alan Greenspan, etc. And they fixed it. It was pretty good. It was about a 50-year fix, maybe a 60-year fix. But the Republicans right now, they're not going to just trash it. This is just Democrat malarkey. This is what authoritarians do. This is what dictators do. They take a lie and they keep repeating the lie in the hope that somebody out there is going to start believing the lie. Actually, I had Jason Smith, the new Republican head of the House Ways and Means Committee. He has jurisdiction over Social Security and Medicare. And I asked him, are you going to trash Social Security and Medicare? He said, no. We're not even going to look at it. Right now, it's off the table. They're looking at so-called discretionary spending items, which is a good place to start. You could get three to one, $3 reduction in spending for every dollar increase in debt. Makes a lot of sense. Real simple. And you'll save a couple hundred billion dollars over 10 years. You know, that's a good number. I mean, we've increased it by $6 trillion during the Biden regime. And two Democratic houses. So my point is, A, don't believe them. Biden's wrong. He's lying. The big lie. And B, we need, we need some budget and spending restraint. It's not hard. But just don't lie. You know, this is not Germany or the Soviet Union. Americans have a lot of common sense. So anyway, I like what the GOP is doing in the first few weeks. We're going to come on. we got the great Art Laffer coming up next. Father of Supply Side Economics, former Reagan advisor, author of The Laffer Curve. We're going to talk about why the tax cuts worked and why some spending restraint would be a good thing, a very good thing. I'm Kudlow. All systems seem to be working now. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. Systems seem to be going here. If you hear me out there, text me. (laughs) I asked that earlier. I didn't get any texts. I don't know. That's not a good sign, but I'll just go on faith. Seems to be working. Anyway, we welcome to the show my dear friend and mentor, Dr. Arthur Laffer, chairman and chief economist of Laffer Associates. Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient. And he has a new book out called Taxes Have Consequences, an income tax history of the United States. Boy, do we need that. Uh, We just lost Art for one second. It's not our day. Maybe we got him back. Do we get him back? I think we're waiting for him to come back. Anyway, all right, we got him back. The great Art Laffer. Arthur, uh, you can't dodge me. You got to talk to me. Well, I'd love to talk to you. I just got the phone call that you called. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my Lord. Art, How is, are you doing? I'm good, buddy. Uh, taxes Have Consequences, an income tax history of the United States. Is the book officially out? Oh, yes, it's officially out. In fact, we had a real glitch on it, Larry. Uh, it sold so much in the first printing of that that they ran out of it on all the bookstores and Amazon for about a month and a half. 
So the new, uh, the new stuff just came on stream, which is wonderful. The last two weeks we've had books back up on Amazon and everywhere. So Good. We'll hopefully it'll re-catch up on its sales. Good. So, folks, one click on Amazon, you can get this great book. Uh, it's a very, very important book. Um, so let's talk about – I just want to talk about one thing. Before we get to income taxes – and why uh, Jared Bernstein is completely wrong for attacking you and <laughs> Trump's tax cuts. What well, you know, you've been around a long time. You, have you watched Biden and Schumer uh, and others uh, criticize the Republicans? Republicans want to cut spending. They'll raise the debt ceiling, but they want a couple of dollars of spending cuts to go along with it. What John Boehner did over 10 years ago, it's high time we had a little spending restraint. The government is too damn big. But they keep saying the Republicans are going to uh, slash Social Security and they're going to slash Medicare and they're going to not pay the interest on the debt. You know, it's and then you talk to these Republican leaders. I talked to, uh, you know, Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise, all of whom, you know, they say, no, we're not touching Social Security right now. That's not part of the plan. Uh, of course, we'll pay the interest on the debt. You know, it's like the big lie, Art. Democrats do this. The big lie. If you say it enough, people come to believe it. It's like Germany or something, or like the Soviet Union. What do you make it? I mean, isn't that just kind of the lowest form of politics? It, it is. Uh, unfortunately, Larry, it's practiced by a lot of people, Republicans as well. Oh, I mean. Oh, I hate telling you that, but it's true. Oh. Uh, but it's much more it's much more prevalent among Democrats today and especially among this, this administration because very simply because there is not a single spokesperson for the Republican Party. Oh. And so they can go and get someone's phrase out of Louisiana and someone's phrase out of Montana and stuff like that and play it. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the fair tax, uh, that's a perfect example mm-hmm. of the fair tax of 23 percent. Only one person I know proposed that that was a, a senator, I believe, from Louisiana. But, you know, that's the Republican plan, which would, you know, it's it's really hard when you don't have leadership in the Republican Party speaking with one voice. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago on your show, is the Republicans need to get a game plan, an economic game plan that is ours. Uh, Low-rate, broad-based, flat-tax spending restraint, as you push so much for and so important. Uh, and then uh, – Sound money, free trade, minimal regulations. Once we get a leadership that pushes that line, they won't be able to pick and choose and pick out people's comments here, there, and elsewhere. And, you know, but it, I don't think it sells, Larry. Everyone knows that they are doing bad things, even when they say we would do them, uh, would do other bad things. I, I, I just don't think it sells. Well, you know, the, it's government spending, federal government spending is now 24% of GDP. Yes, that's like an all time high. It's huge. And it's huge. And, you know, and I think, look, taxes are crucial uh, and the incentive model of growth. But I'm just saying that enough is enough. I mean, because you've said this before, all this government spending comes with regulatory strings around it. And uh, that's like strangling the economy. You know, plus it's 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 not good for the uh, for the inflation story. It's just not good. I mean, we're wasting resources. Totally. It's outrageous what we're doing on the spending. And I don't know where they get their the, the, the model that they want to do. Why they want to do this is just baffling to me, Larry. They should want good, prosperous economy as well. But, in fact, it seems like all they want 
is to blast Republicans and not provide prosperity for Americans. It's it, it's it's really baffling to me. And uh, I, a, I wish it's a prosperity killer. It is a it prosperity is, I mean, killer across it, the board. Yeah, it's a prosperity. Not only killer. do we need to cut spending, as you say, and and so correctly, so by a lot. But we also need to increase GDP with tax rate reductions and growth as well and deregulation. I mean, we need to do the whole prosperity picture, which, by the way, has not always been the Republican agenda. Mm. I mean, if you go back to Kennedy, which you wrote about very eloquently, um, you know, Kennedy, we they cut spending. They increased the economy with tax cuts. They deregulated. It was just phenomenal what happened under Kennedy. And that's the agenda that we all should be wishing for. And Reagan. And Reagan, of course, and Trump. And Warren Harding I mean, and Coolidge. Good bill. Warren Harding yeah. and Coolidge. I want to sneak Harding that in there. Coolidge. Yeah, well, you know, I was a class ahead of Warren Harding. <laughs> and just joking. You know, you use that line all the time He's myself. Also. But see, I'm older than you are. And I, I'm able to use it more effectively. The, uh, if you remember, Reagan used it all the time. I know. <laughs> I know. Sitting there with Thomas Jefferson debating this issue or that. <laughs> I just loved him. Miss, wish we could get back to that type of good bipartisan economics of Reagan and of Kennedy and of of, of Harding and Coolidge and of, of Trump. I wish we could get back to that good. We will. Amen. But it'll take some time. Amen. So anyway, uh, the um... – the uh, Biden White House is now attacking the Trump tax cuts, saying they drove a two trillion dollar deficit hole through the economy. And uh, all they did was affect rich people. And you did a pretty good job uh, covering that on the TV show. And I thought we'd walk through it again for our radio sure. listeners. And you've got sure. the numbers on this, which is very, very important. So first of yep. all, it's another example of the big lie. Only rich people benefited and a two trillion dollar deficit hole, which the numbers, the actual income tax revenue, corporate income tax revenue show are not true. Well, total tax revenues from the federal government in the two years following Trump's tax cut were increased increased by two hundred and forty billion dollars. That's federal tax revenues. It's a much larger increase for that two-year period than from the prior two-year period, way above what these guys said would happen. Uh, it's really an amazing one. Now, if you look at all taxes, federal, state, and local, which I believe is more important and more appropriate, total revenues, federal, state, and local went up by $440 billion, mm. which was much, much more than the prior two years. So, you know, you look at it, there was a surge in tax revenues on the federal level as well as federal, state, and local level following the Trump tax cuts, the Build Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and uh, way above what those people said. And by the way, not just left-wingers said it, right-wingers did too. Uh, you know, the uh, Tax Foundation said it'd be blow a big hole in it. It's just not true, Larry. Uh, this is the last chapter of the book, and taxes have consequences, is documenting all the wonderful things that happened from this. Unemployment rate dropping dramatically to all-time lows for minorities. The poverty rate dropping to all-time lows in, in this country. I mean, if you look at it, it just was across the board a win-win-win-win-win for the U.S. economy. And uh, by the way, Biden is building on that win by not repealing it. Mm. Uh, just for the record, if they thought it was so bad, they would have repealed it. Well, I think they wanted to repeal it, but they couldn't well, get they the votes. they all said that. They all said that. But I don't remember a bill going through that would have done it. I don't see how Nancy Pelosi couldn't have held that 
a coalition together if she'd wanted to. And and uh, uh, Schumer could have done it in the Senate as well with with uh, Kamala Harris. That is true, by the way. They never actually proposed a bill to repeal the Trump tax cuts. They talked about it. They talked about it. But nothing ever came, at least out of the Senate. There was never a Senate bill. Nope. And and they could have. But, you know, they I think they realized that the bill, you know, what you've said about it and what others said is true. It did lead to enhanced prosperity. And why in the heck would they want to destroy the prosperity that's in the economy right now by repealing that bill? Now, we'll see what happens. Uh, Will they make those tax cuts permanent? That's what I'd love to see happen. Well, I had Jason Smith on. He's the new head of the House Ways and Means Committee. Okay. He's terrific, by the way. Yeah. Smart guy. Smart young man. And um, he not only wants to work to get to make the Trump tax cuts permanent, he says he'll build upon them. I mean, we could drop our – the top rate went from 40, 39.6 to 37. You may recall – the original plan was to take the top rate to 35. Yep. And, of course, you know that Reagan left it at 28. I mean, we could drop the top rate some more and have a big bang in the economy. We sure could. And, and the corporate rate, remember, we were going to try to take it down to 15. Yes. If you remember yes. the discussions yes. there. And, and that would have just put us in the middle of the pack of OECD countries. It wouldn't have been the lowest one of all. It wouldn't have been outrageously extreme. When we cut the rate from 35 to 21, 35 was the single highest tax rate on corporate profits of any OECD country. Mm. We just put it back in the middle of the pack. So the point you could have done it nice and lower, too, I thought. The point you're making, uh, which the Bidens won't permit, won't allow, won't uh, recognize, is A, it was a big boon to the economy, and B, the revenues exceeded all expectations. We didn't lose money. We made money on revenues. And that's the Laffer curve effect. Well, there it is. I mean, it's there. And, you know, the one that some people don't mention except for you, Larry, which was, I think, your baby in there when you were in the White House, was 100 percent expensing of yes. capital purchases. Yes. And that baby was huge. I mean, that had a really positive impact on the economy. Now, and, uh, you know, we were so correct on that. And that needs to be extended as well. It's running down. That's the problem. It's running yeah. down. It's it's not 100 percent this year. It's 80 percent. And then it goes 60, 40. They should preserve that because we need capital equipment. We need business equipment, don't we? Yeah. And we also don't need to be taxing those and putting the government regulations and all the filings requirements on them. And, you know, businesses should be able to do business. And not have to worry about government at every step of the way. And uh, putting that 100 percent expensing is just such a good way to do it. It's like Kennedy did. If you remember the uh, uh, the what was it, the 7 percent investment tax credit, right. wasn't it? Or something, you know, and it was just I mean, you really shot the economy through the moon under Kennedy and would have continued to do so here. Well, we just got a report, uh, fourth quarter GDP, which showed that the economy grew fourth over fourth at 1%. And two of those quarters were negative, Art. So yep, I remember. you would think Biden would want a booster with a 1% economy. Um, he doesn't talk about growth. He talks about redistribution. He talks about taxing rich people. A 1% economy is not going to get us any place. And 
the Congressional Budget Office came out this week, and their 10-year projection is for a 1.5% economy. I mean, I know, that's I know. not prosperity. No, it's not, and especially when you think of it from fourth quarter of last year to fourth quarter of this previous year, uh, that, that year period. I mean, a 1% growth, and that's the rebound from COVID, mm. which should be included in there. It not only should have not been 1%, it should have been 5%, Larry. Yep. I mean, it should have been much, much higher than long-term growth because we were rebounding from a low, low base. And, and, you know, it's just very disappointing. The U.S. is in a period of secular stagnation, mm. which – and so is the rest of the world, by the way. I mean, look at Chile's coming down. You look at countries like China and Russia are also coming down, obviously Russia hugely, and Eurozone's coming way down, Britain. I mean, it's, a, it's sort of this malaise of the planet. And the U.S. has to be the one that leads us out of this, and Biden is not doing that. He's just not doing that at all. And then, and then they just make up stories about the like the the, the Trump tax cut, which you know why would they? Jared Bernstein should know what those numbers are. Mm. He's a trained Ph.D. who's working as the personal, personal closest advisor on economics to the president of the United States, and has been in that position for twelve or fifteen years now. He needs – I mean he has to know what the right numbers are, and yet he goes throwing this stuff across on MSNBC to the fawning uh, uh, people there on that show. It just, it's just really disappointing. The scary part I mean, is he may, he may know the numbers, but he still disregards them for political reasons. He has to know the numbers. You know, I mean you know, that's are, the scary part. It is really scary, and when politics takes over from, from correct analysis, mm. we've, got a, we've got a real problem on our hands. All right, Arthur, stay with me. Uh, I got to take a quick commercial break. I want to come on the other side. I want to talk about your theme about the GOP should become stewards of prosperity. We don't have the prosperity anymore. We're talking with the great Art Laffer, by the way, folks, and his most recent book, Taxes Have Consequences, an income tax history of the United States. It's out there. One click on Amazon. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We are here with the great Arthur Laffer. Dr. Laffer is chairman and chief economist of Laffer Associates. He is a Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient, and he has a brand new book out. Very, very important. Taxes Have Consequences, an income tax history of the United States. Um, All right. Uh, If I go back to 1947, post-World War II, that's when the federal economic data really got organized. Between then and the year 2000, GDP, real GDP after inflation, grows at uh, slightly more than 3.5%, 3.5% annual rate. And it covers, I don't know, you know, 10 recessions, 11 recoveries, something like that. But that's the average number. Since the year 2000, which is now over two decades, we're starting our third decade, that number drops down to 1.9%. And as you said earlier in the interview, um, we're looking at only 1.5%, or I said the CBO is predicting 1.5%. You called it secular stagnation. Why is this art? Why have we lost so much growth, which incidentally translates into tens of trillions of lost output and income for American families? Why do you reckon this is? 
you know, I, I, I think it's purely and simply macroeconomic policies on the part of our government is where I'm coming at it. Now, obviously, we have population growth, which probably isn't all that sensitive to tax rates. And we have a lot of things that are not economics that, are, that do play on this, Larry. But the key feature here is macroeconomic policies. We have a tax system that is extremely pervasive across the board. It's not just the highest rate. It's all the way across the board on the federal level. Uh, you can see it on state levels in places like Illinois and Michigan and New Jersey and Connecticut, and I could go on and on and on. We also have excessive spending, which spending is taxation. Mm. Uh, government spending is taxation. Um, if you have two people in, in an economy and one of them gets unemployment benefits, guess who pays for it? The other one. The other one. <laughs> the other one. Yep. Right. And all of that, which you talk about uh, at length, uh, then we have unsound money. Look at the inflation we had this past year. It was as bad as it was under Jimmy Carter or close to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then regulations. Everywhere we have regulations just abounding all over the place. I mean, health care regulations, you don't even know what your health care costs. Uh, and then finally, free trade. And this is the one where people do disagree because of foreign policy. But free trade is really important to stimulate economic growth, Larry. And all of those have moved in the wrong direction. Uh, over this whole period. Now, we had spurts of wonderfulness in, uh, let's say, Kennedy, which I take your book as being the, the Bible on that. We had uh, tax cuts on trade. We had tax rate reductions, dramatic ones. We had sound money. Kennedy repegged the dollar. All of those things Kennedy did. We had a spurt of growth there. We had the same thing under Reagan. We had a, somewhat the same thing under Trump. But overall, the whole period, we've really fallen short on this. And that's why we have secular stagnation. If there were one, I don't know, one or two things you could, maybe you just have to do the package. That's what you're saying. You have to become stewards of prosperity, and exactly. it's a, a four-point package or a five-point package. Yeah. yeah, you can't have an operation that's successful and the patient dying. And there are lots of ways of the patient dying. There are only a few ways of making this success. And you need the whole package of that to create the success. And, and Biden, unfortunately, in this in, in this period, has gone against all five of the pillars of prosperity. Mm. You know, he's tried to increase taxes. He's tried to increase spending. Uh, he's uh, tried to have unsound monetary policy. Uh, he's surely overregulated like mad. Mm. And uh, he's restricted trade in the world economy. So all five of those have moved in the wrong direction uh, under Biden. You and said to me. To get back to product. You know, you, I don't, don't mean to interrupt. You said to me weeks ago that the person that's going to capture the Republican nomination and or the person that's going to be the next president will be the one that shows he or she can be a steward of prosperity, restore exactly. the prosperity. And I yeah. still think, I mean, I think you're 100% right. And I think that has to be, the certainly got to be the Republican message. I'm not really hearing it yet, but I'm saying I think that's the benchmark. That's the standard. You've created the standard of value. Yeah. The thing you started off with is why do they why does Biden go and say we're going to cut Social Security? It's because we don't have a central vision of the world as Republicans. Mm. Uh, They're all over the board. Now, once we get a candidate in the 2024 primary going and once it coalesces if it does coalesce as it did in 1980 Mm. around being guardians of prosperity we'll have it really done and that's what we need to guide and go for 100 percent. the great art laffer folks please buy his book taxes have consequences 
I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a break. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk some energy policy, which is improving under the House GOP, even though the Bidens don't like it. I'm Kudlow. Stay with us. We're going to have the pillars of prosperity. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It's a great pleasure to be with you. And we bring in Congressman Neil Dunn from Florida, Republican of Florida. Hey, uh, it's great to be with you, Larry. A real honor. Thank you, Neil. My great pleasure. Neil, are you a newbie? I, am I? Are you new? Are you new congressman, new house member? No, no, I'm in my fourth term. Oh, because I got I represent the second district, the, the state capital. So, DeSantis is one of my constituents. <laughs> <laughs> Keep him on the straight and narrow. And you have my staff person, my old staff person, Beatrice Valenti. That's ah, how, yes, yes, I, and, and that's uh, how we got to. Actually, you. we enjoy talking about you. You, you we have a, a pleasant overlap. You, you held the same job my father held for a while, chairman of the president's council of economic advisors. Who was your father? Uh, Mike Dunn. He worked for Gerald Ford. Mike oh, Dunn. actually, I had I was director of the National Economic Council, but it's isn't close. that the same thing? They keep changing the name. I thought it was the same thing. No, no, no. It's a different one. But uh, I just want to say Beatrice Valeni was one of my ladies who kept me out of trouble with classified documents when we left the White House. She and Brittany Baker and Susan Varga checked very carefully so we didn't have any classified documents. So I'm clean and I can talk to you on this radio show without any problems. You're on the Energy Committee, right? Uh, I am on Energy and Commerce and the China Select Committee. Beatrice is here sitting here with me, by the way. Say hello to Beatrice, my buddy Beatrice. So um, I like what you all are doing on the energy story. You're gradually now reversing or trying to reverse Trump's, Trump's, Biden's uh, war against fossil fuels. And I want to talk about that for a minute before we get to China. You got two energy bills that have passed: Protecting America's Strategic Petroleum Reserve from China Act, which passed with a huge majority. That was a bipartisan bill, I think, two weeks ago, which is it great. Was. And then yesterday, uh, you all passed the Strategic Petroleum Response Act. Uh, that was a tougher vote, but you got it: two twenty-one and two hundred five, which would tie any SPRO sales to additional oil and gas leasing on federal lands. So now these are both very good bills. Um, I had John Hoven on, Senator John Hoven from North Dakota, and we talked about the outlook in the Senate. Um, the China bill, I don't know, they might get it through. Um, the federal lands opening up more leasing on federal lands, not so much. What do you think? What are you hearing up there in the Hill? Well, we we were uh, a little pessimistic about passing the HR 21 on the Senate floor, but I, the fact that we did get a few Democrat defectors in the House uh, gave me some hope, and I'm I'm hoping we'll find some uh, uh, very deliberative Democratic senators uh, as well that might uh, join us and, and push that over the top. I had Steve Scalise on the show Thursday night. He's a very dear friend. He's a wonderful man. The new Majority Leader. And from Louisiana. Um, great guy. And, yes, he is a great guy. Uh, I, You know, I'm still hoping for H.R. 1 or H.R. 2 because the leasing on federal lands is a good thing, but you need the permitting. 
right? I mean, right. permitting is the key, uh, Neil Dunn. And if you if you um, if you don't get the permitting reform, the NEPA permitting reform that we had during the Trump years, then you're not going to be able to use uh, whatever leases you may get. I mean, that's been the problem from day one. So I keep prodding, uh, I keep prodding my friend Steve Scalise, who said to me, you know, give it another month or two. They're trying to put something together. What can you tell us on that? You need a permitting bill. Well, so you're absolutely right. We do. And, of course, what we really need is a change in attitude in, in the administration that, that energy is bad. I mean, natural gas is a very, very, very clean form of energy that we brought our emissions down uh, to. The, we're the only country that met our promises on the Paris Accord, and we did it by using clean gas. And America is blessed with particularly clean gas uh, and abundant gas. We, it's crazy for us to be importing this when we have our own, and it's it's cleaner gas, and it's, it's at our feet. And by the way, you talk about prosperity a lot. That's a path to prosperity for mm. America. Yes, it is. You know, it was interesting to me this past week, Biden uh, and uh, Jennifer Granholm, his energy secretary, you know, they came right out and said – accusing Republicans of uh, preventing them from releasing more SPRO sales, strategic petroleum reserve sales. Well, you bet we're trying to get them to not do that. We think they should buy new gas, not not take our oil from our strategic. I was in the Army for a long time, and I I have to tell you, when you you take our strategic petroleum reserve and just – you know, sort of sell it on the market to keep gas prices artificially low temporarily. Mm. Uh, that's not a good thing. I mean, that's there so that the military can fight a war if they have to. And that's important stuff. Well, that's the thing. That bill, which goes all the way back to the 1970s, the enabling legislation for SPRO, was <clears throat> aimed at the Arab oil embargo. And then on top of that, down through the years, any emergencies, weather emergencies. It was never emergency use. Right. Right. It was never intended to manipulate gasoline prices and they gave it away. I mean, I mean, we all said you're just trying to, you know, pre-election, pre-election gasoline price fixing is what it was, political price fixing. And they just came out and said it this past week. And I, I think a bunch of you, and I said this to Senator Kramer and Senator Hoven and Senator Barrasso, and I say it to you. Uh, you guys should get up in arms and inform the public of the original points in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve enabling legislation. It had nothing to do with gasoline prices. And the Bidens have abused this terribly. I agree. I absolutely agree. I mean, get out there. Make a big deal about it. We're backing ourselves into the same corner that Germany backed themselves into all of Europe did with Russia. Mm, I agree. That's that's a big problem. So, you know, I really think you should inform the public because this is not ever supposed to be about gasoline prices. Let me talk to you for a few moments. Nobody uh, ever thought it should be. I think it was astounding to me that they try to politicize everything, including medicine. Yes, well... (laughs) Sure, that's what they do. But the other point, um, Neil Dunn, is tell me, I've interviewed uh, your colleague, Mike Gallagher, who's going to be the head of the Select China Committee. 
Uh, let me just ask you, what are your priorities going to be on this new Select China Committee, which is going to be very important? Well, th- thank you for that, because it is. I think it is an important committee. And, um, <clears throat> of course, people are looking to me to help with the medical supply chains. And that's not just pharmaceuticals, although that's the first thing I think everybody thinks about. But literally everything in medicine, whether it's, it's a drug, uh, a device, a Band-Aid, uh, you know, <clears throat> it's just we get everything from China in our medical supply chain. And, and that, that's a very, very dangerous thing as we found out in the pandemic. I mean, they literally can choke that off from us. And we have access to, we we get our anesthetics from them. We get our antihypertensives from them, antibiotics, chemotherapy, but, you know, even sophisticated biologic uh, medications are mostly sourced or their substrates are from China. So we're looking at um, 85% of all the active pharmaceutical ingredients that are in our medicines literally come from China. So what can we do about it? If we want to onshore, Mike Dunn, what can we do, Neil Dunn, what can we do about it? So that's funny because McCarthy, when he first put me on the China task force a couple of years ago, he grabbed me by the front of the jacket and he said, repatriate the the supply chain, the pharmaceutical supply chains for China. And of course, I've been working on it ever since. And I've discovered the enemy. And as Poco said, the enemy is us. Uh, you know, the FDA is, has a process for approval of manufacturing uh, and sales, and by the way, controls the volume of sales as well, of, of, of pharmaceuticals to an extent that it's driven the manufacturer uh, overseas. And, and it's they really become difficulties. So we're going to work on cutting red tape overregulation in the FDA. That's just one of the problems, but it's the biggest by far. And uh, we need to – we can produce API in this country. We can do it very well. But we just don't because of the red tape that's involved with it. Um, uh, we, we can they, – they are literally strangling the American pharmaceutical supplies. Now, that doesn't get to all the other things, the Band-Aids and whatnot, but this – is, you know, basic stuff that we need, medicines we need that are life-saving, and the FDA's made it too hard to make them in America. I mean, don't we have the best pharma and biotech companies in the world? They do the best research and the best development, Mm -hmm. but then when they turn around and you want to produce it, it's much more difficult. Interestingly, the new medications, when you have a really new breakthrough medicine, you know, the FDA tends to line up with you. But if you just say over 80% of the prescriptions written in America are for generic medications, that mm. includes all those classes I mentioned before, anesthetics, you know, over the, you know, the pills you buy from your pharmacy, everything, 80 plus percent uh, of, of that is uh you know, the F- FDA has actually very, very controlled, but it's generic, mm. it's generic. And uh, and so then it's really a problem with manufacturing. And you've got that process of getting licensed and approved to manufacture these drugs is way too ossified. All right. And so that's it's a regulatory issue principally. That's it very is. interesting. Not surprised to hear exactly that. Exactly right. Anyway, Neil Dunn of Florida, I'm Congressman Dunn. I'm now, well, we had this when we did Operation Warp Speed. We had to slash through the uh, regulatory obstacles from the FDA. Wouldn't I love to have Operation Warp Speed in my day-to-day life on everything? <laughs> I'm working on it. Actually, Beatrice Valenti will fix all your day-to-day problems. 
This... I'm going to hold her to it. All right, Congressman Dunn, thanks very much for your time. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break. And on the other side, Washington's best political pundit, Charlie Hurd of the Washington Times, will visit with us. Please stick around. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We have Washington's really best pundit, best, smartest pundit, Charlie Hurt, Washington Times opinion editor, Fox News contributor. Charlie, you're a prince for helping us out on the weekend. And, of course, you always help us on TV. Anything for you, Larry. No, no, you are the the best. Always good to catch up with you. You know, Charlie, I was going to talk to you some more about why you and I are in the wrong business, and we should be, <laughs> we should be Nancy Pelosi, who just. Yeah, see, I think I think she's coming for you. She's going to start her own <laughs> business uh, business <laughs> stock investing uh, 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 television program. I think she's. I, she could replace us all. I know. <laughs> she and her husband, you know, shorted Google just on the er, on the verge of the Department of Justice lawsuit, and they made three million dollars from it. But I actually got something else for you that I found this morning uh, going through my emails. Did you know that um, President Trump, former President Trump, is sending out these, I'll call them policy videos? I wasn't really aware of this. Now, I get all his stuff, make America great, blah, blah. But I can't say as I go through all of them. But it is kind of interesting. I, I I just want to get your take on this. There's one that came out yet yesterday. Uh, it's called The Old Crow is at it again. And then he says, um, Mitch McConnell is a stone cold crook and a rubber stamp for Democrats. President Trump calls on House Republicans to use debt ceiling and get it back. Now, here's here's the important thing. Why has McConnell become a rubber stamp for Joe Biden and the Democrats pushing through Another $45 billion in Ukrainian aid, the omnibus spending bill, and the infrastructure bill to fuel historic inflation, costing every American family an additional $7,500 in living expenses. And then it concludes by saying President Trump is calling on House Republicans to use the debt ceiling to get it all back, take it all back now. Now, Charlie, I, I know he's attacking Mitch McConnell. Okay, I, I get that and so forth. But it is interesting that Trump uh, is calling on Republicans to use the debt ceiling to cut spending. Uh, he mentions the Ukrainian aid, the omnibus spending bill, and the infrastructure bill. And he mentions the uh, quote-unquote historic inflation. I mean, he's pushing the debt ceiling and then before that, as you may probably already reported on, he is saying, don't touch Social Security, don't touch Medicare, which the Republican leaders are not going to touch Social Security and Medicare. I've had them all on my show. And they, you know, to a person, they say that. Oh, it's such a lie. Right. That's the big. But, the, I, but that, the Democrats get to say it and, and, and the media runs with it. So, you know, wouldn't you tell the lie if it was as effective as it is for Democrats? Well, that's the thing. It's like the big lie. It's like some totalitarian. Yeah. You know, Joe Stalin type big lie. Uh, I don't know what's going to work. But it, are you surprised? It's interesting. You know, Trump. Look, I was with him every day or several times a day for three years. He was never a spending cutter. That was not his thing. Right. Taxes, yes. Regulations, yes. Lots of things. But he is, uh, you know, joined to use the debt ceiling to cut spending. Stay away from Social Security and Medicare. Now, 
I think that's pretty interesting because he's the only only I'm going to call candidate, if you will, who's really saying stuff. In other words, I'm not hearing yeah. DeSantis say that. I'm not hearing anybody say that except him. Anyway, what do you make of all that? So, so one of the things I thought was so interesting about Trump from the very beginning was he's the first Republican who came along because he is, like you say, he's a spending guy. Yeah. He's a, his, his whole career has been leveraged mm. on debt, and he, and he has his own 757 so, with his name on it, so it worked out for him. But but he never promised anything different. Which I, and while I'm a I, you know I'm a fiscal conservative and listen to you know your prescriptions for yep. these things, um, I, I admired the fact that he wasn't playing games with that and claiming something that that uh, that he then which Republicans all Republicans do you know they go in claiming to be spending cutters and then they go in and then they spend like drunken sailors mm. and so I sort of admired that. But but I agree with you. I, I have been you know. He has taken a hiatus, uh, some of it uh, not by his own choosing, off of social media. You know, he's kind of stepped out of the, the spotlight. And apparently, and what I, I admire this tremendously, he's doing his homework. Mm. And he's focused back on the things that we care about and the things that will make him a serious candidate. And, and I firmly believe can get him reelected. If he focuses on these things, and and this is a great example, he did another. He's he's talking about education. Mm-hmm. He's talking about mm-hmm. uh, he's he talking about a whole host of things that that, uh, that 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 they're policy things. And when you go back and you look at that extraordinary election in 2016, he didn't get elected by being a nice guy on Twitter. Mm. He and, and the fact that he was a jerk. I, you know, I think it probably helped him, but it, it in any event, it's it didn't it didn't um, it didn't hurt him. But the real reason he got elected is because he was talking about issues, mm-hmm. and he was right on all these issues. And and I'm I have to say, you know, I, I know it's very sort of everybody likes to to think that he is finished. I don't think he's finished. And as long as he's focusing on these issues and talking about this stuff, um. I, I, He's got, he's got a, he writes his own future. Well, it's very, and, and, and it's funny. He go, you know, he goes after McConnell, which is, you know, uh, you know, as uh, sometimes I, I get that a lot of people are exhausted by the Trump way of doing things. And like, for example, he did a video talking about uh, a, a parental bill of rights mm-hmm. in public education. And he talks about pink haired communists teaching uh, teaching in classrooms today, and you and you sort of cringe when he says pink-haired communist, kind of like you cringe when he talks about old crow being the most corrupt person mm. in Washington mm. and all this kind of stuff. You, you and I cringe because mm. we just want him to focus on. But you know, there is a magic to the way Trump sort of calls out his enemies, and and but but none of it to me matters as long as he is focusing on the issues and. That's what he's doing right now. I mean, I talked to him a fair piece, and I was getting on him about the debt ceiling and spending and stuff like that. But he usually doesn't listen to me on spending stuff. <laughs> right. Other things, I'll give it a maybe, <laughs> Charlie. But on spending, I never had much luck on that. Neither did Mick Mulvaney. Neither did Russell Vogt. <laughs> uh, but hey, we got to go there yelling at us. But it's, you're right. He is talking issues. 
uh, economic issues. DeSantis is not. Nobody else is. And I think it'll probably serve him well. Anyway, I wish we had a lot more time. We're going to figure it out the next time. Uh, Charlie Hurt, folks, read him in the Washington Times. Best Washington pundit by far. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, WABC and Newsmax, Greg Kelly on his new book. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. All right, welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great pleasure to bring in my friend Greg Kelly. Newsmax TV anchor, WABC radio host, and importantly, retired lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps Reserves. And Greg, whom I've known for many years, Greg's got a new book out, Justice for All, How the Left is Wrong About Law Enforcement. Boy, that's an understatement. So, Greg, welcome to the show. First of all, congrats on the new book. Oh, Larry, thanks for having me. Great to be here. And, uh, yeah, they're wrong. They always have been. But something's changed where corporate America and our culture have just adopted the left's position. Now they're all wrong. Uh, The left, corporate America, the culture in general. It's kind of a crazy time right now. Really strange. This the woke corporations you're thinking about? Well, corporations, academia. Mm. uh, The first corporation that leaps to mind because it's very emblematic of a lot that happened was uh, the NFL, you know, right after, oh. right after uh, George Floyd, you know, they put out a ridiculous statement in supporting black lives matter. They had no idea what they were signing up for. None, zero. And if they did, uh, they all deserve to lose their jobs. Quite frankly, uh, black lives matter stands for the abolishment of the nuclear family, the abolishment of police prisons, uh, our way of life here, capitalism. It's a communist organization. And so many of these uh, corporations, uh, universities, you name it, big, small business, just put their, their logo right next to the BLM logo. And it's the first time I've ever seen anything like that. We've had riots before, Larry, of course, race-driven riots. and But our kind of systems all understood that rioting was wrong. Destruction of property was wrong, except this time. Somehow it was viewed as uh, holistic or righteous uh, or it was ignored. And I just had never seen anything like that. And I kind of wanted to document it and see how it originated. And, uh, and, 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 there, and there's the book. Yeah. Um, Greg, speaking of all this, um, do you have an updated thought on this Memphis business, which just reads awful? I, I confess I have not followed it. We didn't cover it on our TV show last night. The news was breaking. It's not a racial issue because uh, both the victim and the police are uh, black African-Americans. But I didn't know whether you had looked at that. W- what is this all about? Have you figured it out? Well, I have looked at it. Uh, it's a horrific video. Uh, there is no excuse. I mean, I guess the there are four videos that were put out. And the second one is the most, in my opinion, disturbing. Um, it's security camera footage from a neighborhood and the way they are punching this guy and kicking him. Mm. Uh, it's, it's shocking. I haven't seen anything like that since Rodney King. Mm. And, uh, I remember my dad's reaction to Rodney King. He thought those guys needed to be arrested. Uh, same in this case. Now we know it's not racist, right? Because as you mentioned, the cops are black and so is the, uh, the victim here. And that's one of the reasons why we did not see really, you know, wide, uh, wide scale 
rioting last night. We saw pockets here and there, but nothing, nothing tremendous. Uh, but there are people pushing this narrative, and they pushed it for years now, that policing is inherently racist and that it's a vestige of the slave patrol, which is totally untrue, by the way. It's, it's people at the NAACP and the, uh, and the 1619 Project have been pushing that. It is um, a fallacy. Uh, but in their eyes, a black police officer is an instrument of white supremacy just by being a police officer. Mm. It is preposterous, mm. but they're pushing that. And uh, you saw maybe the famous headline at CNN, like, you know, racism is still a factor. And they have the pictures of all the black cops because they like to say policing in general is inherently racist, which is ludicrous. That's this anti so-called uh, this is this so-called anti-racist woke nonsense where all life, all life is um, is a question of the oppressors versus the oppressed and that the oppressors are always white supremacist and that you can be whatever color or nationality or descent you are. If you're in a position of authority, you're part of the white oppressors. And that's where this comes from. Um, yeah. Ted Cruz has written about this at some length in his fabulous book, Senator Ted Cruz, and it was a real eye-opener. Uh, so that's what you're describing now. I didn't realize CNN had done that, but why am I surprised? Why am I shocked uh, at any of that nonsense? Um, so Greg Kelly, of course, my favorite police commissioner uh, is somebody named Ray Kelly, um, who I might add, for no particular reason, has been always wonderful to me down through the Many, many years. The guy's just a great person and was a great police commissioner. Just want to say that. I've known you a while, and uh, I'm so glad things are working out on Newsmax and WABC. But let me ask you this. In the book, do you talk about this whole George Soros, you know, left-wing, soft-on-crime district attorney movement? The guy spends $50 million, God knows how much, $100 million dollars to elect uh, local district attorneys, include our own Alvin Bragg here in New York, uh, who believe in no bail and no jail. Do you, can you do you tackle that at all in the book? Oh, sure. Absolutely. And, uh, and George Soros, I, I disagree with his uh, his values and his goals, but it was a brilliant uh, strategy because it was kind of a backdoor uh, into American political life and the criminal justice system. You know, district attorneys races generally don't receive all that much attention because whether you're a Democrat or a Republican and you're interested in fighting crime and being a prosecutor, generally speaking, you're tough on crime. Uh, but Soros saw an opportunity where you could spend just a little bit of money for a guy like Soros, 50 million spread across the entire country. <clears throat> that's uh that's uh, money well spent, and you get somebody like Alvin Bragg or a Krasner. Alvin Bragg is particularly egregious. Uh, the the New York County District Attorney, Manhattan. Uh, you know, I like to point out though, uh, there, uh, Lee Zeldin got some blowback because he said, "I'm going to fire him day one." Mm -hmm. And I heard even conservatives say, "Oh, that's uh, that's anti-democratic." You know, how can the people have chosen Alvin Bragg? Uh, well, number one, it's in the state constitution, all right? So the people also elected leaders who came up with the state constitution, but only a, roughly 90,000 people voted for Alvin Bragg mm. in a city of 8 million. Mm. And very undemocratically, uh, the 
primary day was on the last day of school in June. <laughs> it's something that the Democrats have done to minimize voter participation. Uh, nobody is really thinking about voting on the last day of school. So if you have the means, you can get only a, a, a few thousand people who are fired up, leftist, full-time kind of agitators to go out and vote for a maniac like Alvin Bragg. And I do use the word maniac deliberately. I mean, if you look at his manifesto on day one, where he says certain types of armed robbery uh, will not be prosecuted, I mean, this is hideous stuff, uh, and it's it's right there. And we have George Soros to thank. Very brilliant. I did not anticipate that. I didn't see it as a vulnerability, but here we are. You know, I, I just somehow, Greg Kelly, I don't see it. I don't think it's a coincidence that all these big cities across the country that are run by big blue Democrats and they're big blue Democratic, I mean, the mayors and the district attorneys and whatever, have a crime wave. You think that's a coincidence? I mean, really? I'm, I'm, it sounds like a corny thing to say or an obvious thing to say, but it's like if you go, you know, here's A, you've got a bunch of left-wingers who hate cops, no matter what they say, they hate cops, they want to defend the police, uh, defund the police, rather, they, and which they basically said in 2020. Then they calmed down in 2021. They've tried to back away, but they haven't changed their views at all. Left-winger, left-wing mayors, left-wing DAs defund the cops. The uh, victims don't matter. It's the criminals we have to help out. You think this is a coincidence that you have these horrible murder rates and subway crime and um, – uh, department store crimes, right? I mean, you can't walk into a, a drugstore now and it's not and not see people. I mean, it's like a cost of doing business. These drugstores just write off all the stolen goods. I mean, this is not a coincidence. This is a serious thing, and it's ongoing. And I don't see anybody stopping it, Greg Kelly. Well, something I'm trying to do with the book is to have an honest conversation about race. Number one, you're right about big cities. And the direction they're going. It's hilariously, though, uh, last night I actually saw some people pushing, you know, uh, Tennessee is actually a red state. So this is a Trump problem. And all the MAGA states have, uh, have these problems. And they say the same about Ohio. Uh, I put up a map of Tennessee. You know, you see a sea of red counties and then Memphis is bright blue. Right. Um, right. But, you know, so much of this is about race in America. And it's interesting that uh, if you are a conservative, generally speaking, you don't like to talk about race. That 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 subject has been dominated by the left, and they're the ones who like to talk about it, no matter what color they are. So conservatives have retreated from the discussion. And the, as soon as somebody says, well, you know, you can't walk in a black man's shoes or whatever it is, it generally shuts a lot of people up. Um, I think whatever color you are, uh, especially if you're conservative, you need to talk about race and get comfortable talking about it. At one point, Barack Obama, I thought he was going to have an honest conversation about race. You know, he stepped forward after he secured the nomination in 2008 and said out loud, we got a problem in the African-American community. We have too many absentee fathers. It's a problem. We got to do something about it. Now, that was one hell of a moment. And a lot of people voted for him because he was willing to have that conversation. I mean, who else could? But he was hit so hard by the left, Jesse Jackson threatened to castrate him. Mm. 
that he never went there again. And he was conflicted enough about his own race. And he writes about it in his many books about himself. You know, uh, the black community viewed me as with suspicion because they saw me as white. They didn't see me as genuinely black. He says all this stuff. So he decided to go all in on uh, the, the victim culture, white supremacy. You know, one thing on that I remember, you may remember Professor Gates uh, was stopped by that Cambridge cop yep. early in the Barack Obama yep. presidency. Yep. And, and he came out very indignantly, Obama did, and said, you know, the Cambridge police acted stupidly. And it's, it's a known fact in America that you're more likely uh, to be stopped if you're black than white. That's a fact. Mm. Okay, that's a fact. But what about the other fact, all right, that disproportionately crime is committed by black and Hispanic people, disproportionately speaking? He would not go there. He, and, and he created a division in America, ripped it apart to further his own brand. And BLM, oh, by the way, and sorry to go on, but was created in some part to bail out Barack Obama's problems with black people. Mm. In 2011, he was losing support in the black community, and he decided to, uh, well, BLM helped him. They emotionalized the issue of Trayvon Martin, which should have not have been a national issue. Mm. Barack Obama had to get black support, and he did it through Black Lives Matter. It's, uh, it's very cynical, and I, I outlined it in my book. I didn't know that that happened, but it did, and uh, it's it's. What a what a lost opportunity. And it, it falls to people like me at Newsmax, believe it or not, to try to wage this honest conversation about race, even though it can be uncomfortable at times. By the way, uh, obvious, maybe high crime cities are high unemployment, low economic growth cities. Just want to put that in. I mean, crime is like a tax hike because you're not going to have a. If your business, if your small business on the street, Greg, is closed down, you're not going to reopen it. Or if you're thinking about opening a new small business, you're not going to do it in a high crime area. I mean, this goes back to Rudy Giuliani, um, who combined the two, but I always have. The fact remains, crime and the economy are tied up. You show me a high crime city and I'm going to show you an impoverished city. And by the by, one of the greatest cities in America. Chicago is going through it right now. Chicago is a was a fabulous city. And because of the crime problems there, it is not a fabulous city anymore. It is becoming an impoverished city. So there's an economic hook to it uh, as well. I don't know whether you talk about it in the book, but they go hand in hand, unfortunately. Uh, they do, especially when manufacturing left New York City. I, yep. I focus on that. Manufacturing also... You know, a lot of the uh, the uh, stevedore uh, positions, you yep. know, we, we don't have docks in Brooklyn and Manhattan anymore. They moved to New Jersey. And then when they uh, containerized cargo, you just didn't need many people to uh, load and unload the ships. And a lot of good working class jobs disappeared. Uh, we they, they like to call it white flight, which mm. is they totally it, 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 it's totally it makes it sound like it was a racist thing. No, it was an economic thing. The jobs went elsewhere. But, you know, you remind me, Rudy Giuliani, uh, that man saved so many, so many lives. Mm -hmm. Most of them people of color. Uh, I like to say that my father as well with aggressive policing, aggressive, but humane policing especially when my father was commissioner. The book is dedicated to him, by the way, and, mm -hmm. and thank you for your kind words. Uh, 
You know, he left office after 12 years as commissioner. His approval rating was at about 70 percent. Mm. Uh, among blacks and Hispanics, it was about 63 percent. I mean, this these are crazy numbers. They they know how to police. We knew we know how to do it. But the liberals came in and broke it. They broke it. First, they pretended that policing was broken. Then they pretended to fix what wasn't broken. And then de Blasio actually managed to break it. And oh, by the way, Adams is no better. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Uh, let's just, just pause here. We're talking to Greg Kelly, uh, Newsmax TV anchor, WABC radio host. Uh, his new book, Justice for All, How the Left is Wrong About Law Enforcement. Uh, Greg, my friend, talk. how's Bragg doing? Give us a report card on Alvin Bragg. Uh, no, no. We talked about Brett. Go, go to Eric. Let's go right to the mayor. How is Eric Adams doing on crime? Eric Adams has no business being mayor whatsoever. <clears throat> Eric Adams does not have the managerial political skill. Uh, he is an immature person. Uh, he was never a real cop. He has no idea what he's doing. There are 30,000 people in New York at least who know more about law enforcement than he does. You've seen it already. He likes to wear nice clothes. He likes to have a press conference. He likes the nightlife. That's all he knows how to do. Now, he appointed a woman who, from what I hear, is a very nice person, Keechan Sewell, as the police commissioner. Oh, by the way, where has she been? She's almost invisible. Um, she's invisible because Eric Adams wants to run the police department. And I already listed his deficiencies. I'll throw in one more deficiency. He's a racist. Mm. He stood up in public and said he's going to chase cracker ass out of the police department. Well, he's actually done that. He's actually firing people based on the color of their skin. Mm. It's very sad. Uh, you know, yesterday he's touting uh, numbers of uh, crime decreasing, not happening. Number one, I don't trust the numbers. Number two, there aren't more people are dying on the subway. And in the same breath, he says the subways are safer than ever. It's uh it really is something to behold, this individual, this city, where we had some giants, Bloomberg, Giuliani, Koch, mm. and, and Wagner, and that this, this individual, career politician who knows nothing, is the mayor. Now, I know he talks a good game, and he sometimes fools the people over there at the New York Post. Oh, wow, he's saying all the right things. Uh he says all the right things to your editorial board. And then he says something else when he's in Brownsville. He's not to be trusted. From what I understand about his uh, his personal life and his uh, real estate holdings, I, I, I don't know. I have a hard time imagining him making it four years, but, but we'll see. I had lunch with a pal of mine, someone I suspect you know. I'm not going to name names, but he's a very, very well-respected CEO of a big company based here who just said to me, you know, Adam says the right things. The trouble is he doesn't do the right things. And that's what you're saying, too. I mean, some of his statements, you know, are very conservative, uh, but he never seems to follow through. By the way, you know, I talked to him periodically. I did during the campaign, Greg Kelly, and I did afterwards. He still will call occasionally and beg him to do stuff on the economy, taxes and regulations, but nothing ever seems to get done. But in terms of policing, um, 
Isn't the police department still woefully short of staff, like 5,000 cops too few or something like that? Well, the headcount has uh, dropped dramatically. Uh, I believe 10,000 police officers have left in the past uh, 24 months, and and who can blame them? And by the way, who wants to join the police department? (laughs) This is a – it was already a job where you risked your life, you know, day in and day out. It was part of the job. Now you're also kind of risking your your freedom and your livelihood. Mm. The city council came out with this preposterous rule about how you can grab a suspect. Uh, you know, I forgot if it's above the diaphragm or below the diaphragm. <laughs> I've never been able to figure out where my diaphragm is, to be honest. So, uh, they have they have cha- they have chained the hands of cops, and you know, really, I don't blame them why aggressive policing how can you be how yeah. can you be an aggressive police officer in this environment right. oh by the way we're not talking about breaking heads you know what happened in memphis i got it joe hey larry i appreciate it so much you bet that. greg kelly newsmax and right here at wabc radio host the name of the book is justice for all how the left is wrong about law enforcement my pleasure talking with my pal greg kelly i'm cudlow we'll be right back after this from Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Great pleasure to be with you. As always, please, during the week, join us on Fox Business Network. Name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day. And if you can't get to us at 4, just text message your favorite nine-year-old who will show you how to DVR the show. It's all it takes. And here, you can live stream us on the Internet, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com. Runs across the country, throughout the world, all through the solar system and the Milky Way, wherever that may be. So let's look at stocks and the economy. We have, oh, we've got a good swing out today. This is going to be great. Jim Urio, director of TJM Institutional Services, Chicago's leading restaurateur, and Jeff Kilberg, CEO of KKM Financial and proud graduate of Notre Dame University. Gentlemen, welcome. Uh, I want to begin with a little discussion on the economy because we haven't done that much. And I want to say we had two big releases this week. One was on fourth quarter GDP, which if you – Look under the hood was really a lousy number. Now, the headline number was 2.9. But if you look under the hood, most of it was a big inventory build and a big trade uh, improvement. Um, Consumer spending, it's funny, consumer spending came in at 2.1%. So that was okay. But at the same time, the second report that was very important, personal income for the month of December, which, again, for consumer spending, showed a decline in December and a decline in November. And the three months were negative. And um, that tells me the inventory bill is going to have to collapse. And I think there's going to be negative GDP in the first quarter and maybe the second quarter here. So I, I think it's got recession written all over it. The inflation number is not bad, though. Inflation was uh, one-tenth of one percent on the PCE deflator, three-tenths of one percent on the core. Uh, for the 12 months, you're at five percent 
on the PCE deflator and 4.4 on the core. Those are important measures for the Federal Reserve. They've come down quite a bit from uh, roughly 9%, but the Fed's target is 2. So there's still over twice uh, the Fed's target. So I think the Fed's got more work to do, probably another quarter coming up, maybe another quarter after that. We will see. Anyway, I begin with you, Mr. Urio. Um, what's your take on these economic numbers and the Fed, for that matter? Okay, can I ask you a quick question first? I've been studying economics for 40 years. Why is inventory builds considered in the GDP? How does that help the average American and figure into headline GDP? It's never really made sense to me. Am I crazy even for asking that question or no? Well, it's a good question. Look, um, the reason it's in there, it's part of the overall investment. I mean, okay. we everybody breaks it out because you ha- you have to produce goods and services, uh, yeah. and so they it's really calculated as part of uh, non-residential business investment. It's kind of a, a misleading number, but look, inventories are important. I mean, inventories are but it obfuscates what we're looking at here, it seems like sometimes, because that really doesn't, to me, give an accurate temperature of the average American. But, I, yeah, I think what you said about the under the hood, you know, credit card debt, all-time highs, and the service of that debt, 3% higher than it just was a year ago. Household savings down $1.6 trillion. Uh, business in- investment within that GDP number, you know, a paltry 1.4%. Um, I, you know, the average American family is suffering right now. And the, the question, why it's not showing up in the data is something that keeps me up at night. But here, I think it genuinely is just the tale of two economies. And I think the dramatic wealth transfer that happened over the, um, the first year and a half of the pandemic response is figuring into these numbers. The people who have money have plenty of money, but there are plenty of people who don't. I don't know if you saw the latest from uh, Bloomberg that um, uh, car delinquency loans is the highest since 2009, like right after the mm. implosion of the Great Recession. So that's a delinquency longer than 60 days without payment. Th- these are big deals to me. And I think and I hate when we see these numbers, I hate being the guy who's like going. But if you look at it this way, we are going to recession because at some point in time, someone's going to think that uh, the emperor has no clothes and we have no teeth in this. But I do still think it's going to happen. Well, look at business equipment investment, which is very important. Um, that includes uh, doesn't it, it, it? It's not plants, but it includes all manner of technology, for example, um, you know, and other machinery that fell. I mean, this was not reported hardly, but business equipment in the fourth quarter was down three point seven percent at an annual rate. That's a nasty number. Yeah, and, and that goes. So, I mean, I think uh, we'll, get, we'll get Kilberg in here, but I just want to. Don't need to, Larry. Just let it be me and you. Let's just. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But uh, you know, they they it was um, Biden went out and took a bow and said how great these numbers were, and the Republicans are going to screw it up. But the reality is, these were lousy numbers. By the way, for the year, just for the heck of it, fourth over fourth. Real GDP was only 1% growth for the year. And um, the GDP deflator was 6.3. So those are broader numbers. Um, the PCE numbers on prices were uh, better, I, a.k.a. lower, uh, 5% for the PCE deflator, 4.4. But I think you have a stagflation here, Jeff Kilberg. You, you're basically, with these numbers, Jeff, um, 
the chances of recession, you know, and of course we have the inverted yield curve and leading indicators have been declining and M2 is declining. But with these numbers, uh, I think the chances of recession, uh, unfortunately for the country, are a lot higher. And you probably would, you know, not far fetched to say the first quarter will be negative. I got to push back on you guys a little bit. And, and I know there's two ways to look at this glass. It's either half full or half empty. But you guys are looking at the glass as half empty and leaking. Let's take the side of earnings. Let's talk about earnings for a second. I know it's been pretty bifurcated, but nonetheless, we are 16% higher from the October low in the S&P 500. And earnings last week was a big cow. So look at American Express. Yes, they missed on the top and bottom, but that forward guidance, talking about the strength of the consumer, not just domestically, Larry, but also over in Europe, that put a little bit of spring in the step. So I do think we have the ability of a soft landing. I know the PCE data does allow the Fed to potentially you know, have a little bit softer tone next week. We're going to have to wait until see Fed Chairman Paul takes the actual microphone on Wednesday, February 1st. As we see the market move, though, the market has been confirmed. The breath is getting better. We are now seeing the NASDAQ 100, which was the laggard last year, down over 30%. It's back above its 200-day moving average. We saw the S&P 500 as well as Dow Jones vault its 200-day moving average. So there's a lot of uh, positivity. Is it sustainable? This could be another bear market rally. We did see you know, last August we saw an 18% pop off the low in June. But nonetheless, I have more optimism than you two, and that's Pretty pretty low bar you guys have set today. Well, I'm not look at I'm not saying uh, stock markets. And are, I wasn't making fun. I was not making fun of Yurio's height in that joke. By the way, oh, I don't God. want anything on Twitter, Jimmy. Okay, here we go. I'm not I'm not saying uh, I didn't comment on the stock market. I didn't say a word about the stock market. I'm just saying that the Nor I. underlying economic numbers don't look good. Um, earnings look profits. Yurio uh, doesn't believe in profits, so that's point number one. I think profits are the mother's milk of stocks. Um, Yes. I don't think I don't think earnings are going to be any good. You know, you can point to X, Y, and Z, um, and I'll point to Intel or Goldman Sachs. But the Fair broadest enough. measure of profits will come from the GDP accounts. Now we didn't get we didn't get the fourth quarter, uh, but the profits, um, particularly non financial profits, in the GDP accounts, which is the broadest measure uh, adjusted for capital consumption and so forth. Um, those numbers have been flattening out. Margins have been coming down. I'd be careful about the profit story. Uh, I mean, I know Wall Street, you know. It, 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 the yeah, but I think we also have to look at GDP to a certain extent, Larry, as a bit of a rearview mirror. I think there's so much yes. Yes. Uh, to really digest with China reopening and Europe maybe not as bad. There's a couple other inputs that I think are going to change. And, of course, the stock market is a forward pricing mechanism, but we are in a unique moment in time. We've never seen balance sheet expansion. We've never seen a pandemic. You know, I know Jimmy has really only probably traded during the 1918 Spanish flu, but nonetheless, you and I have never traded in a pandemic, Larry. Go ahead, Jim. It's time for a response. <laughs> no, but, okay. So the joke that Larry just made a second ago for you people listen is we've had this running argument for 15 years. I don't look as much at profits and earnings because I believe it's Ooh. more of a macro Fed. Story. I got it. I got an as much. Usually I get a zero. <laughs> as much. Right? I'm going to be nicer. It's my new year's resolution to be less abrasive. But I think that Fed liquidity is the mother's milk of stocks, and that's uh, – that's what I'm I, I'm not going to be disabused of that yet, just because not even now we're pricing in two more 25 basis point um, hikes at the next two meetings and then eases by the end of uh, 
2023, which, by the way, I'd like to challenge that. I think the situation where they would uh, hike 50 more basis points and then toward the end of the year take back only a quarter, because the only reason they would ever uh, pivot if things were falling apart, if the flames reached the windows of their tall ivory towers. That being said, I I said about how bad I think the economy is, particularly the bifurcation, which you mentioned, Jeff. I don't think – I to me, that's my bull case for stocks, because then I think the Fed – starts to back off and they start to realize that the efficacy of their rate hikes is just starting to be felt now. And the yield curve has been screaming that at them for months. By the way, I want to make a point in your favor regarding liquidity, because in the next, uh, this is three, four, five months, the Treasury Department is going to be pushing in um, five or six hundred billion dollars of new cash into the banking system in order to avoid a debt default. It's a very interesting, almost obscure topic, and I got to give a hat tip to my pal Dan Clifton of Strategus. Um, This rarely happens. This is like old-fashioned, you know, in the beginning of time, at the beginning of the 20th century, it was before the Federal Reserve was the Federal Reserve, before there was a Federal Reserve, um, the Treasury Department did open market operations. Anyway, they are going to push a lot of new cash into the economy in order to um, pay the interest on bonds. Just an interesting that, point. Uh, that's like a QE package, right? Yes, it's, a it's, new it's, QE package. yes, it's a mini QE. That's exactly what it is. Not such a mini QE, by the way. All right, right. the engineers are telling me i got to take a quick break, so I will do that. Jim Urio of TJM Institutional Services, Jeff Kilberg, CEO of KKM Financial uh, believe it or not, folks, we're all good friends. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're talking stocks, or we are about to be, with Jim Urio of TJM Institutional Services and Jeff Kilberg, CEO of KKM Financial. Jim Urio, what is your uh, stock market outlook right now? So, so I'm still bull. I'd like to see some more strength on Monday. I've been a bull for a few months. The, the, what I particularly like is metals and copper more than anything else, just because I think the, chop, the China coming back online story um, is big. But I do. I want to see the dollar, and I, I'm, I'm it, for my bull thesis. I'd like to see a little more weakness in the dollar, like trading below 101 in the dollar index. But then I think after the first quarter, if rates stabilize and start to hint for lower rates, uh, I think tech then could explode. But I'm, I'm mostly metals, and it's uh, you know copper, silver, gold, platinum in that order. Why is gold so hot? Dollar is down, gold is up. What, what do you make of that? So I think that gold is up because the dollar is down. And I think the initial start to the move in gold had something to do with the crypto market because, you know, the crypto had just taken so many punches. So the question becomes that $3 trillion at its high market, as soon as all of a sudden crypto became not really a reasonable um, dollar hedge, then gold became your dollar hedge. Mm-hmm. And then as we start to rally, then the reason it's rallying doesn't matter as much because buying begets more buying. So I think that's the story in gold so far. And copper is hot. Copper's hot. Copper was being just pummeled three months ago. Copper was, you know, plumbing the lows, and it was all about lockdowns in China and all about the strength of the dollar. And those two things are reversed. So copper's hot. Copper's like been. I gave a speech about that three months in New Orleans, and I, I it's copper's my big play for six months, a year, and five years. And Jim Kilberg, um, oil is hot now. Not this past week, but basically crude, crude oil, West Texas crude. 
has gone back. It's basically gone from in round numbers from 70 to 80. And Brent crude, European crude, has also gone up about 10 bucks. Although it is interesting, natural gas has plunged $2.85, according to these sheets, down 36% year to date. Jim Kilber, what's going on there? Natural gas? Is that because no one's going to use gas burning stoves anymore? Ha ha ha. <laughs> That's a meme in itself. But, you know, I think you bring up a great point. And to see crude oil at $80, I think that really speaks. And I'm going to have to repeat this because Jim loves hearing this. But I think Jim's right. Yes, Jimmy, I think you're right. And I know you love hearing that out loud. But wow. when you just dollar index. <laughs> I know, I know. And amen's coming next. But when you see the dollar index relent, when you see the 10-year note relent. If you go back just to October, Larry, you saw that 10-year note. That was the max yield. It was about 430. Now it's back on and seemingly tethered to 3.5%. So that's giving a lot of uh, rejuvenation to some of the names. I've actually talked a little bit. Remember the dog of the Dows? That was the trade where you'd buy the worst stocks in the Dow. Mm. Well, I kind of came up this year with the nasty of the NASDAQ. And these are high beta names, folks. But you talk about Tesla. Lucid, AMD, NVIDIA. Those were the four worst names in the NASDAQ. Those are all up 30, 40%. So super high beta, but I think it speaks to Jimmy's point. I can't say it again, Jimmy, but it speaks to his point that that lowering of interest rate yields, that lowering of the dollar is going to allow tech to come back and heal. And when you see that downtrend breaking like it has, even in emerging markets, or look at PGJ, that's the Invesco Golden Dragon Index. Of course, when you see China coming back online, that speaks to oil, the demand of oil. So I think oil Oil will stay elevated, and that's going to really help a lot of soothing, a lot of healing. But we have allocations in EEM, which is the Emerging Markets ETF, as well as PGJ, trying to capture this. We push position in that in Q4, and it's working right now, Larry. Is it sustainable? Well, we have to see what Fed policy is, and if they do come up for air. And I think the last thing I will come up for air myself here in a second, but the last thing is that we have really trusted the Fed. The Fed has not forecasted anything in the last four decades. I don't know why the market is trusting that they're going to do the right thing. And I think what the 10-year note is telling them in the long end of the curve is that it's time for them to raise 25 base points and then sit on their hands and stop. Listen, Amen. you guys you guys are good, but you're not as good as Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> Nobody's you're good you're not as good as Nancy Pelosi because Nancy Pelosi shorted Google a couple yeah. weeks before Remarkable. the Justice Department filed an antitrust case. So that's good investing. You know, you yeah, guys. Well, how about Hillary Clinton? She turned four thousand into a hundred thousand in nine consecutive trades, well, and then retired. I was going to me- nine home runs in your first nine at bats. I was going. I was going to mention her, but I didn't want to offend anybody. <laughs> I, I thought Gordon Gecko was good, but Gordon <laughs> Gecko looks like junior varsity. I mean, Pelosi gets Investor of the Year. You know what I mean? She made three million yeah. bucks, and the sort of the best part of that story, Business Insider did this. And they actually printed out all her trades. And oh, it's like, like a 25 pages. You killed, you had to kill a lot of trees to get her whole book. I mean, she's a wealth manager. She's a yeah, Morgan Stanley they, wealth manager. She's not a speaker. She bought, she, yeah, she bought the paper companies because of how long that was. <laughs> Unreal. Uh, so, uh, Jim Urio, what will the, when is the Fed, Fed meeting? Is this coming week? Yeah, Wednesday this week. So, what do you, you reckon a quarter? I reckon a quarter, but I do think they're going to flex their muscles and keep warning us that they're not they're not done yet, and yeah. they're going to keep going. Yeah. I think they're going to keep flexing their muscles until they stop. Well, I mean, the thing is, I know market indicators say inflation is gone, uh, but the stuff they look at, 
again, I'll go to my sheets. The stuff they look at is still rising at 5%. They look at the personal consumption expenditures, which is, you know, of all the lousy pieces of government data, uh, it's be- it's better than the CPI, although there's a CPI revision coming up that might make it better. It'll probably confuse everybody. But the la- I got to say, the last three months, the PCE deflator is only 2.1% annually. So that's yeah. pretty close to their target. Uh, on a core basis, it's a point higher, 2.9. Um, so, we, you know, they got to be kept, I would say, 5% uh, at the peak rate. Would you guys agree with that? Um, I think a little less than that. I think yeah. 475 to 5. I think two more 25. All right, but you're closing yeah, in. I think that's what close, they close. That, that's what You're they closing part. in on. Yeah. But uh, yeah. they'll have to grapple with an inverted yield curve for quite some time. So that will Amen. be interesting. Gentlemen, thank you very much for a spirited discussion, Jim Urio and Jeff Kilberg. Terrific stuff. Folks, we're going to take a quick break and then talk money and politics with John Fund and Steve Moore. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Wall Street to the White House. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show, and we're talking money and politics. We haven't found John Fund yet. We have all his numbers. Anyway, we got Steve Moore, or at least that's the rumor. (laughs) You got me. All right, buddy. Freedom Works, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and his show here on WABC, More Money, coming right up after my show. Yeah. And his latest book is Godzilla, how the relentless growth of government is devouring our economy and our freedom. Seymour, um, there's a couple of things I got for you guys, but one one of them is I'm very tired of Joe Biden and uh, Chuck Schumer and Hakeem Jeffries and Corrine uh, Jean-Pierre and other Democrats keep saying – that the Republicans are going to slash Medicare and Social Security and default on the debt. I'm getting very tired of this big lie. I've spoken this just this week, Steve. I've talked to McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy, on the air. I talked mm-hmm. to Steve Scalise on the yep. air. Uh, I talked to Jason Smith, the New Ways and Means right. chair, on the yep. air. And they're going to do no such thing. What they want to do is cut domestic, well, they'll just cut discretionary spending. Three for one, two for one, whatever it is, they're not talking about the big entitlements. And Biden is like, you know, uh, Joe Stalin or something with the big lie. And I'm getting tired of it. I mean, I think it's, it's just, it's incredible that he keeps doing this. And my question is, why is he doing it? Well, I suppose we know why, but it's going to hurt him because people want spending cuts right now. Yeah, well, look, a couple of observations about this. First of all, let's start with this idea that there will be a default on the debt. I mean, shame, shame, shame on the president for saying that. I mean, what is he trying to do? Run down the value of our you yeah. know, our debt by, by scaring investors that it's not going to be repaid? Um, look, let, let me put it like this. It's very, the chances of not America not repaying its debt because of this debt ceiling fight is 
not zero, but it's very, very, very close to zero. Right. <laughs> like 0.001%. I'd never say never, but it's absolutely um, – it's not going to happen. And so for the president to run around the country saying we're going to default on our debt, all that does is, you know, spook investors and it, makes them less likely to want to invest in our in our country in our debt. Uh, number that's number one. Number two, number two, um, there will be no cuts to Social Security. Uh, there will be no cuts to Medicare. I don't even actually favor those right now. There's hundreds of billions of dollars that you could cut. Let, here, I'll give you five hundred billion right off the bat. We could uh, obviously cancel the IRS. 78 or 80,000 new IRS agents. Okay, I just saved you $50 billion right there. We could cancel the green energy slush fund. Mm -hmm. That's $370 billion right there. We could eliminate the fraud in the Medicaid and the unemployment insurance program and in food stamps. That's another $100 billion. I just saved you $500, $600 billion. There's a lot of low food out there to to, uh, pick off. And I don't think many Americans would miss those programs. And I agree. I totally agree. I mean, it's just the, the fear mongering going on here is incredible. And I I think it, uh, John Fund, we're talking about the big lie and fear mongering that Biden keeps saying uh, Biden and Jeffries and Schumer and these others that the Republicans are going to slash Social Security and Medicare and default on the debt. And the Republicans continue to deny it. And I and I think at the end of the day, I don't think it helps Biden. I think it make him, makes him look more like a buffoon. It's an old Democratic pap. They've been saying this for decades and decades and decades. And they'll say anything not to cut a nickel out of spending, John. And I just wondered, uh, you know, Steve's come up with a great list of uh, half a trillion dollars right there. I mean, look, it's very commonsensical to say, okay, you want to raise the debt ceiling by a dollar. Then cut spending by a dollar or cut spending by two dollars or cut spending by three dollars, something like that, which is what they're going to wind up doing. And it's what John Boehner did with Barack Obama back in 2011. And it worked rather well. And it's satisfied. You know, you didn't cut anything important. And uh, the public wants to see some restraint. So, John, Fund, I guess here's my question. Is Biden making a political mistake by sounding, you know, this big lie sounding like a horse's ass? Only if Republicans are scared enough to react to it. Uh, You know, the reason Democrats do this is it's like burglars going through a neighborhood, Larry. They keep trying every door until they find one that's open. And every time they try the door, if it's open, they say, you know, you're you're throwing seniors off a cliff. Look, the thing that Republicans have to worry about is what I call self-inflicted wounds. And there are two of them that we've seen in the last year or so. One was, unfortunately, Rick Scott, who had a pretty good program for the economy, but he included the, the uh, proviso that everyone should pay some income tax. Mm-hmm. Now, in theory, I'm in favor of that. But trying to explain how you would do that and combat charges that it's basically you know, raising taxes for half the population is a difficult reach. The second problem they had was this fair tax. The fair tax is never going to happen. We're not going to repeal the 16th Amendment, getting rid of the income tax. That's not going to happen. So discussing the fair tax is a disaster because Democrats can say to seniors and people who are almost seniors, you've been paying income taxes your entire life. Now we're going to get rid of the income tax and we're going to add a 30 percent sales tax to everything you buy as a senior or retiree. What talk about being screwed as a citizen? So Republicans have to avoid traps that aren't realistic and ignore the Democrats, you know, boy cried wolf 
tactics because people have heard that so often. They're either they either believe it or they don't believe it. There's nobody who's persuadable. Why don't they just say we're going to roll back some of this crazy excess of democratic spending, which caused nine percent, ten percent inflation, and led us into a recession? Why don't they just say that? By the well, way, the, the the numbers came out this past uh, uh, Thursday and Friday. We are heading for a negative economy in the first half of the year. Why don't they just say that? We're, we're going to roll back unnecessary spending in order to get rid of inflation and uh, restore prosperity to the economy. How about that? Well, that's you know what, Larry, the, uh, the, the public actually supports that agenda. You know, our friend Scott Rasmussen just did a poll a few days ago. Now, Scott's a more Republican pollster, so it skews maybe a little bit to the right. But the numbers were really pretty amazing. I think there were something like well over half, like 53, 54 percent said they would want to see spending cuts and some kind of path to a balanced budget, even if it meant a partial shutdown of the mm-hmm. of, of, um, of the budget of the you know of the federal government, and only like thirty six percent said no to that, which is kind of surprising because half of the you know half the voters are Democrats. So uh, I think the public kind of gets what you're saying that there's something severely wrong with what's happening in Washington. And somebody just sent me this chart, and I know you're not a a debt phobiac, and I'm not either, but when you look at these numbers, what it pointed out is it took, you know, 220 years to get our our debt to $7 trillion, and it's taken like 10 years to get it to the next $7 trillion. So, I mean, the amount of of debt that we're taking on, and, and look, the debt is just symbolic of overspending. I want to make one other quick point, Larry. The the revenues that came in last year, you know, we've been five years into the Trump tax cuts. Did you know we had an all-time record high in federal tax revenues in the wake of the Trump tax cut and that the rich are paying a higher percentage now than virtually ever before? So this the other big lie is the rich aren't paying their fair share and we got to raise taxes. Well, that was um, uh, John Fund. Art Laffer got he really got angry because Jared Bernstein went out there at the beginning of the week and on two separate MSNBC shows said that the Trump tax cuts blew a $2 billion hole in the budget deficit and that the bulk of them went to rich people. And so both are lies. Statistically, I mean, Art got the numbers, came on our show, I believe on Monday. He just did it again on the radio and, you know, disproved it. So I'm just saying, I think, look, I think people uh, would like to spend less. They want less inflation and they want more prosperity and they want to keep their taxes down. And these are Republican prosperity, um, you know, stewardship of the economy. So they should take the high ground, John, and talk about growth and prosperity. CBO just came out and said we're going to have another 10 years of one and a half percent growth. You know, there was a time when this country grew at three and a half percent a year. Right. And I think that's the kind of stuff to start talking growth, start talking prosperity, start talking about how typical families lost seventy five thousand dollars per family because of the lousy uh, economy of the last two decades. I mean, that's the way to do it, isn't it? If you go to the typical middle class family and say, you know, a lot of things are going up in price, the cost of college tuition, uh, the cost of uh, cars. A lot of things are costing more. But as you pointed out, 
if we had had historic economic growth rates, mm-hmm. 3%, 3.5%, which is the American average throughout our history, mm-hmm. rather than what we did have, the average family income would be 40% higher. Yes. Imagine what, as a middle-class family, you could do with 40% more. Uh, you know, you can, you can send a second kid to college. You can buy a car every two years. You can, uh, re, you know, refinance your house and put, put the money into investments. You can, you can really live the American dream. One of the reasons we don't have people thinking that the American dream will be there for their children or their grandchildren is the slow economic growth rate that you mentioned. We've got to get back on track to historical averages. And we have proven throughout our history until big government that we can do that. Listen, Steve, I was talking to Steve Scalise, who was a very bright guy, very bright guy. And um, we were talking about workfare and work requirements, which is a very American thing, traditional American thing. And he noted correctly, if you put people back to work, okay, we have generous social welfare benefits, but if you attached a work requirement to them and they went back to work, like they did after the Gingrich-Clinton uh, deal in the mid-'90s. Yep. Here's what you do. You employ more people, right? Uh, even at lower tax rates, they have higher incomes, and they pay more revenues. And guess what? They'd be paying more into Social Security and Medicare. You increase the number of people working in this country, then more people pay more into the entitlements, and therefore the entitlements are rescued the old-fashioned way by working and growing the economy. Now, how good is that? This is Scalise, just wraps this out, okay? Uh, He didn't know this was coming. And that's exactly another thing they should be saying. Go back to work, the dignity of work, and that's a very popular thing. I, I mean, that thing polls extremely well. So I would, you know... There may come a time when you're going to need a blue ribbon bipartisan commission to deal with Social Security again, the way Reagan did 50 years ago or whatever it was, 40 years ago. Maybe so. But uh, it seems to me work requirements is a very good way to do it. And what Scalise said is because the Democrats are giving away all these benefits, right, choosing welfare over workfare, that's draining money from the big entitlements. And he was right, Steve Moore. He was exactly right. Well, I mean, you're 100% correct on that. And in fact, I was going to bring that up right before you did that, you know, add to that list of ways we could cut the budget, you know, getting people off of welfare into work. And by the way, that's 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 like a 90-10 issue. Yes. Right. <laughs> I mean, 90% right. of Americans are in right. favor of that. Uh, and Clinton, by the way, to his credit, and Clinton on the economy was, was a very good president. Let's remember, yes. we had a balanced budget. We had a surging stock market because we cut the capital gains tax. We did the welfare reform. We did, you know, spending cuts uh, and those kinds of things. He was a free trade guy and all the things that the Democrats are not today. Um, and somebody told me this. I don't remember who it was, um, that when people are working, they're happier and healthier. Oh, yeah, that was Larry Kudlow who told me that. But it is so true. I mean, the, the, the data comes keep coming in. Yes. That. People are happier, healthier. They live longer. They have us. There is dignity in work. Yes. Period. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There you go. As American as cherry pie. As American as the Declaration of Independence. All right, kids. 
We're going to take a quick break. We're talking to John Fund and Steve Moore. I'm Kudlow. We'll be- From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking to John Fund of National Review and the Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline and the author of Our Broken Elections and Steve Moore of FreedomWorks, also the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. Uh, and um, he'll be on with his great show called More Money. I'm trying to figure out how to keep my microphone up. Uh, maybe you can help me. Um, and his book, uh, his latest book is called Godzilla. How the relentless growth of government is devouring our economy and our freedom. Gentlemen, I want to talk to you about the latest policy wonk in the presidential race. Now, this is very interesting. Bear with me. I don't know if you get this stuff. Um, Make America Great Again, these videos and these uh, sends out mailers, emailers and stuff like that. Donald Trump, who which candidate or expected candidate is pushing Republicans to use the debt ceiling to cut spending? The answer is Donald Trump. Now, there's some cringeworthiness to this, as always there is, but I'll just read it to you real fast. The old crow is at it again. Mitch McConnell is a stone-cold crook and a rubber stamp for Democrats. President calls on House Republicans to use the debt ceiling and get it back. And he says... McConnell helped them push through $45 billion in Ukrainian aid, the omnibus spending bill, and the infrastructure bill to fuel historic inflation costs. And every American has to pay another $7,500 in living expenses. President Trump is calling on House Republicans to use the debt ceiling to get it all back, take it all back now. So, John Fund, I'll go to you. You're probably the biggest skeptic here. Here's Trump on policy. I don't hear DeSantis saying this. I don't hear Pence saying this. I don't hear Nikki Haley saying this. I don't hear any of them saying this. Now, I know he has to blast McConnell. He can't help himself. But, <laughs> but still, it's very interesting. And he sent out earlier a pretty good primer on immigration and parental rights and education. He's almost doing this below the surface. But, of course, he's got a very, you know, millions of people on his mailing list. What do you think, John Fund? Hello. I'm here, Larry. All I don't right. know. If there. <laughs> All right. So, Steve, you take it. You, you know, okay. you're involved in the Trump stuff. I mean, yeah. here he is. He's doing policy stuff. And in particular, he's saying use the debt ceiling to cut back on unnecessary spending, which none of the other wannabes are really saying. I love when Donald Trump talks about policy. Yeah, I just love it. Yeah. You know, and I was, my line is he was a great president. And when you worked for him and the, the amazing things you did for our economy and our country, uh, Donald Trump was a great president. Not Maybe not quite as great as Reagan, but, the, mm-hmm. and, but you know, one of the best in the last 60 years. Um, where he gets in trouble is when he goes off and talks about politics and, uh, you know, uh, trash talks and things like that, which you and I don't like. <laughs> he does that. Right. We told him not to do that, remember, right. <laughs> when we saw him last. So uh, good. Good for him. Good for him. You know, look, uh, he is he has the right agenda. He has great people who are helping him out or, uh, you know, a good, good friend, uh, Brooke Rollins, who mm-hmm. runs the American First Policy Institute. So mm-hmm. I love it. But I just want to know I want to say, you know, one of my heroes, I want to say the hero of the week, if I may, is uh, Kim Reynolds, the no. governor of Iowa, mm-hmm. who passed a massive 
school choice voucher bill. Mm. And uh, she is great. She's a Margaret Thatcher in the Republican Party. So, yes, I love Donald Trump, uh, you know, but I think we got a lot of talent out there in the Republican Party. And they're in the governor's office. They're not in Congress. I'm just saying it's interesting. I want to get back to Kim Reynolds in a second, who I also I yeah. agree is a fabulous governor. But I just think it's interesting that Trump is, uh, is the only one of the presidential wannabes yeah. uh, who's, you know, lending support to using the debt ceiling to cut spending. I mean, that's all. It's just I know he has to do it through Mitch McConnell and stuff like that. And that's the cringeworthy part, which we don't like. But on substance, he's knocking out a whole bunch of policies. Uh, on education and immigration and now budget spending. And by the way, uh, Trump was a big spender, right? I mean, I love the guy, but his worst part was he was good on taxes. He was never good on on any good on spending. John Fund, are you surprised that Trump is sending out these policy uh, documents there? By the way, they're not only emails, they're videos. Well, it's about time. I'm very glad he's doing it. For the last two years, Trump was living in the past. He was looking backwards at the 2020 election. Look, I wrote a book on all of the irregularities in the 2020 election, so don't get me to defend that. But the American people want someone who's going to address their immediate concerns, their near future concerns, and they want to know, how are you going to make my life better and the life of my family better? Trump has finally, after two years, recognized that and is acting on it. I just hope he keeps on that course, because as you know, Larry, he can often be deflected. Well, the other point, though, I'm making is none of the other wannabes are on policy message. Including well, their excuse will be they're not running yet and they want to bide their time. And frankly, I understand why they're saying this, Larry, because anyone who raises their head above the, uh, you know, the trench line uh, before the their actual presidential announcement is going to be slammed by Donald Trump. So that's why Donald Trump is out there running. He's the only candidate, and no one's going to join him for the next few weeks or months formally. Then the debate begins. Well, all right. But DeSantis, who's done a lot of good things in Florida, mostly social issues. Um, you know, No, Larry. He's a bu- look at the budget. Look at education, school choice. Look at all of those things. DeSantis has transformed Florida. So did Jeb Bush, of course. He deserves partial credit, too. Florida is a laboratory of successful conservative governance at the state level. Yeah, but if my my problem is DeSantis, I'm not against DeSantis, by the way. Uh, I want to hear him on fiscal issues and I want to hear him on foreign policy. But he did wade into the RNC thing. And I, I was quite surprised at that. And that didn't work out for him. Anyway, I'll give Trump credit. Uh, he's had a lousy post-presidency. But at least he's talking some better issues right now. Anyway, many thanks to Steve Moore and many thanks to John Fund. And I'm Kudlow, and we will be back next weekend.